0: with AWB Contract Templates.
1: What I hear a lot is my doctor won't run this test. My doctor won't do this. My doctor doesn't hear me. And right in there, we are in a sympathetic dominant state, fight or flight state that doesn't allow for the healing of our chronic conditions. So there's this funny place between how do we advocate for ourselves and not spend our energy and our anger a lot of anger towards those medical providers.
0: Hello, hello, and welcome back to Pause on the Play. As always, it's amazing to see you here where you are challenged to reconsider your normal and consider realities you may be unfamiliar with in order to understand that they too are real. I am your host and conversation MC for the day, Erica Corday, here to get the dialogue going. I want to start off this episode by acknowledging that this podcast is recorded on the stolen land of the Susquehannock, Piscataway, Nantiago people, native to this area known as Maryland. Hey y'all. So this episode is medically heavy. I don't know if that's the word phrasing. That I want to use. It's it's gonna dig into some medical stuff. And it's gonna dig into some what I like to call the symptoms and the diseases, like here's what we notice, but here's the thing that causes it. And literally that's something I say that actually had nothing to do with the fact that today's was about medicine. However, I, I kind of had to use it because it made perfect sense <laughs> to do it. But This episode really gave so much around something that, unfortunately, almost all of us have experienced, and that's the biases as well as the medical gaslighting that happens in treatment and care. And so often, it's not even about being well. It's really the sick care, the sick treatment. And I really appreciated being able to go into where this shows up, um, I've shared some of the experiences that I've had as a black woman. The fact that there are um, trans individuals that are experiencing things that no one should have to experience and how honestly their, their treatment as a whole just does not have the things in it that it needs to. And that gender affirming care is not the only care that the trans community needs. And we went into what functional medicine is, which is where I'm really appreciative of my guests because... I was like, I just want to jump in. And it's like, wait, wait, let's go back. And (laughs) we went back and we laid a great foundation for functional nutrition. And I think that that was just such a beautiful lead in. And so let me tell you a little bit about my guest. Um, Today I have with me uh, Andrea Nakayama as the host of the 15 Minute Matrix podcast and founder of Functional Nutrition Alliance. Andrea is leading thousands of students and practitioners around the globe in a revolution to offer better solutions to the growing chronic illness epidemic by highlighting the importance of systems biology, root cause methodology, and therapeutic partnerships. She helps historically underserved individuals reclaim ownership of their health. That is no small feat. Because unfortunately, there are so many misguided truths that are given to people in the medical industry that absolutely creates these biases that impacts the care or lack thereof that we're receiving. And so being able to kind of get into this with Andrea really just was such a beautiful, full, robust conversation. Um, and I'm also just gonna say, I swear, no matter how much I try to make my mouth do it, it is just like, I feel like I'm butchering her name, but that's okay. I talked about that with her. It's not okay. But I addressed it. So please know, I talked with her like, yeah, my mouth is is not wanting to do Andrea as much as it needs to. However, this was an amazing conversation. Um, in a lot of ways, it just really reminds me of the fact that there's so often that we experience things. And as we went into the medical gaslighting, it reminds me of the fact that gaslighting as a whole happens way too much in life. And gaslighting is essentially just being led to believe something different than what you know to be true, what your gut or your intuition or your body or your senses are telling you is the truth here. And I appreciate how being able to talk about when that tries to show up for us is something that we do within pause on the play the community. I'm very grateful for that. Like it's a space to where when things come up and we're not real sure, or we're like, yeah, I don't know. You just sometimes need to just talk it out, type it out, share it out, however it happens. And I think there's a lot of value there because the reality is is that often gaslighting doesn't feel good. But the reality is is that sometimes it can actually just be something that you've been conditioned for things to not be positive, not be beneficial. That sometimes... you automatically can have a negative bias that pops up and wants to tell you it's terrible. And it's like, no, it's actually not. And so being able to just get into where the act of gaslighting can give us a false parallel or a false truth. There's so much value in that because that is a huge part of us continuing to dig into the way that we can create change, not just in our own spheres, but in the world beyond. So if you want to have a space to kind of navigate what's happening, what you're thinking, what you're feeling, and being able to just kind of soundboard, sometimes that can be immensely helpful, and the community can do that for you. You can join today by coming on over to pauseontheplay.com forward slash community, and we would love to have you in the room. So without further delay, let's get into it. Hello, and welcome, Andrea. I am so excited to have you here, to have what I already know is going to be a very full and dynamic conversation.
1: So. <laughs> I am so excited to be here with you. We got a lot to dive into.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's so much. And the, the beauty of this conversation is that there's that understanding from a tangible, I've had my own experiences, as well as the, hey, this is what I do.
1: Mm-hmm. And...
0: I don't like how my industry is doing things and I want to disrupt and do things differently. So I greatly appreciate both (laughs) that you are bringing and I would love to just have you um, begin by just honestly, just humanizing yourself for a quick, quick second here. Is there anything that maybe isn't included in your bio, isn't on your website, something about you as a Mm. human that you'd like to share?
1: Oh, that's such a good question. Yeah. I mean, I've suffered with chronic illness myself. I know my bio talks about my husband's illness and death and how I watched him treated by the medical establishment. I think the biggest thing I'm going to add there is that I sold my business, my big business, and I'm still a part of it about four and a half years ago. And that brought me Face to face with some ceilings, head to head with some of the ceilings that exist and mm-hmm. some of the ways in which female entrepreneurs can be gaslit. And um, that really kind of woke me up to other ways in which we experience the limitations that are given to us, even when we can tell ourselves that we're not limiting our future. I don't know if that makes sense, but like, you know, finding our edges in the world and pushing past them when we're like, wait, what the fuck just happened there? Damn. Why am I being held back?
0: No, and what you said makes total sense to me, because I think there are the things that we are aware of via gender, sexual orientation, um, socioeconomic status, age, race, um, religion, all of these things that will show up. But there's also this whole other piece of, hey, these are the body parts that I have, or this is how I identify. And because of that, people automatically assume what you can or cannot do and what you should or should not have access to. And it's like... Yeah. I already got my own shit I got to work through. I don't need you to create a whole nother set that is part of this system that I got to fight through as well.
1: Yeah. And the labels that we receive when we do agitate positively, when we do disrupt, like how that gets us labeled as uh, females as being a certain way where that might not be the same way that it lands in the male population. I want to acknowledge that
0: you used the word agitate. Which I appreciate that you use that word because agitate has such a negative connotation. And my washer agitates my clothes. And I'm exactly. very happy with how they come out. Exactly. So, <laughs> you know, I'm like, no, no, we're not gonna do
1: that now. So that's how we're rebels, right? We gotta I just right. hate we gotta look at things from a different lens. We gotta flip everything upside down and say, wait, what are we getting wrong here? Because something clearly isn't going right. That's rebellion, that's disruption, that's agitation.
0: Well, and that's where I think, you know, clearly when, when you're a woman, and there's any of the multitude of intersections that can come with that, that's just, you know, kind of the icing on the cake of these extra things that you're navigating. And that's partially where I kind of want to kind of literally just trying to jump in the deep end here because there's some terms that I want to not only know what they mean for you, but I would mm-hmm. love to be able to have like that stage setting that we really like to do around here. And one of those terms is biases. The other is medical gaslighting, which mm-hmm. I know what gaslighting is, but from someone in the medical industry, I would love to have you really share when you talk about biases and when you talk about medical gaslighting, what are those two things separately and where do they intersect?
1: Yeah, so I'm going to go on pause, back us up a minute, and talk about who I am and what I do, because that really sets the stage for my lens into these answers. So, I'm a functional medicine nutritionist, and in functional medicine, the way it should be, meaning at the core of how it was designed back in the 1990s, is really a way of looking at healthcare that embraces three primary tenets, And those three tenants are Are one, the therapeutic partnership, two, looking for the roots, and three, a systems based approach. So, number one, a therapeutic partnership. It is my belief that the patient is an equal partner in their care and that we have to make room for that patient to come forth and bring themselves forth. There's two experts in the room or there should be in every clinical environment. And the only expert on you is you. The patient is the expert on themselves. And that's undeniable. And if we don't make room for that, we've lost touch with that primary tenant. Tenant number two, looking for the root causes means we're asking, why is this happening? Not just, what do I do about it? So our medical system today is very much based on protocols. I train a lot of nurses, and they have a hard time. I love them. And they have a really hard time getting out of the protocol thinking. So let me just give you an example. I have Hashimoto's, autoimmune thyroid disorder. Two of us who have Hashimoto's got there for different reasons. We just had reached the same tipping point. And so when we ask, why is this happening, we get more sustainable results. But our current medical system asks, oh, this is the condition. What do I do about it? But that's just what I call a branch, not a root. All our signs, symptoms, and diagnoses are branches, migraines, PCOS, uh, you know, fertility issues, uh, even menopausal issues, cancer, lupus, MS. These are diabetes, these are branches, depression, anxiety, I could keep going, right? They're branches, they're not roots. When we ask why, we really get down into those roots. And the third tenant that I mentioned is the systems-based approach. And functional medicine is or should be based on systems biology, meaning we recognize the truth that sort of now known that the gut's connected to the brain and the the hormones are connected to detoxification, which is connected to the gut and the immune system. Most of it is based in digestion. We're seeing these all of these uh, connections to each other, the web of interconnections. So those three tenants allow me to really honor the relationship with the patient and bring into the picture what I call functional empathy. Now, empathy in practice is the hardest thing to teach. I used to lead my 10 month training with a module on empathy, and I realized everybody thinks they have empathy, but they're doing empathy all wrong because they're not actually bringing or allowing room for the patient. So when we talk about biases, as the first point that you asked about, biases can be things that are uh, we're looking at either gender or race through or whatever we might be seeing through our own biases and bringing that to the table of care and making assumptions about that person's life, lifestyle, history, where they're supporting their body or where they're not, those could be biases. But what I also see in healthcare today is that there's the biases of the, uh, the, diagnosis du jour. So in my lifespan as a clinician, there might be a point where everybody's talking about parasites and Mm. then everybody's talking about small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And then everybody's talking about adrenal fatigue. And there are these biases that clinicians now see through that they place on the individual and see that individual through that lens I'll give you one other example, you know, with my husband who had a brain tumor and he was diagnosed when I was just seven weeks pregnant. This is over 20 years ago now. It was in April of 2000. And he was treated like a walking dead man. And we would walk into a room and they'd talk to me and I'd look at the physician and bring their eyes back to the very stoic half Japanese man sitting next to me who could speak for himself. But the bias was that he was his diagnosis. My late husband was my late husband, a father-to-be, a son, a brother, a husband, a musician, a software engineer. He wasn't a glioblastoma multiforme. So there's a lot of ways that we bring bias to care. And I'm going to pause there before I go into the medical gaslighting and just see if there's anything I can uh, bring more light to. I actually do have a question. So, uh,
0: no pun intended, I often use an analogy where I talk about things in the context of the symptom and the disease. Yeah. What I wonder is when you mention the biases, are the biases the symptom or are they the disease?
1: Mm, That's such a good question. Let me think about that one. The biases are definitely, I'm going to call a symptom that mm-hmm. has then been labeled, become a disease in and of itself.
0: I can agree with that. Okay. Yeah.
1: Be- because when I think
0: about, for example, um, a black woman that goes in to give birth, yeah, there's this assumption about what her pain level is. There's an assumption about uh, how she heals, how she bleeds. Um, there's assumptions about her temperament. There's so many things that aren't accurate. And in my head, I'm like, but those feel like symptoms. Those don't right. feel like the disease, if anything, and it still isn't fully, I, I think like a, a, a clear path to me. But if anything, the disease is more of like, you somehow think that black people and their bodies and their processing of, of pain, healing or lack thereof is not the same. as white people. And that feels like that's more of a disease.
1: Correct. I completely agree. You know, there's a really great podcast series right now coming out of the Commonwealth Club uh, called Uncared For. That's about the inequities in uh, prenatal and postnatal care in our country, but then in our country compared to other countries. And in part, it's because how we've pathologized Pregnancy, and we don't bring in the adjunct care that actually works with the individual, the birthing parent, as who they are completely and fully. And then, like you're saying, on top of that problem of there being the pathology of uh, of maternal care, we are then bringing biases to the table that help us, or or I should say, hinder us from being able to see the individual for who they are.
0: Do you feel like it's as clear to understand what these biases are across different demographics or or groups of people? Because I feel like, you know, to talk about the differences in how um, Black people are perceived when it comes to pain and healing, it's not in it's not something that's never been heard of granted it's it's still abysmally low but do you find that in your experience that other communities using the trans community as an example do you feel like they're getting any attention
1: It's a shift in attention, but I think it's a drop in the bucket of what's needed. And one of the things that I was really exploring with the trans communities, with military communities, is how do we actually bring attention where it's needed in the realm of chronic Illness. So there is a shift in the awareness of gender-affirming care, if we're thinking about the trans folks, but gender-affirming care tends to be focused on gender-affirming care and not the care that trans folks get elsewhere in their health and medical care. And so mm-hmm. that, to me, is a really curious nut to crack in terms of like, how do we bring the kind of care that we can to all individuals? If we look at functional medicine as an example, and we look at uh, different populations of people who have chronic illness, Functional medicine has become this realm of high-cost testing, concierge practices. It's very inaccessible, and I don't think it needs to be like that. I think we should be bringing functional medicine and functional nutrition based on those three primary tenets into communities that have different different areas or ways of accessing. Functional medicine, functional nutrition doesn't mean we shop at Whole Foods. It means that we think differently about how we're taking care and how we're able to understand connections in our body and our life, given whatever we have access to. So I think that there's there's little tiny drops in the bucket and moving forward feels really big, it feels huge to me. Like I'm, I'm actually not sure I even made a dent in the work I did other than that. I have a platform where I train thousands of practitioners and I could bring what I'm learning back to that community. Well, and, and I think that that's the thing. There's a
0: lot that would need to change because Part of what I am kind of picking up from what you're sharing, and I think that it applies to any of the communities that are not being properly um, served or supported when it comes to their health and their well-being, not sick care, but like being well, Right. um, is just the fact that it's a broken system that has been operating exactly as it was designed to, and it was never really meant to keep us well. It was meant to be a money making machine. And there's no money in being well based on the way that it has been set up. And so taking care of people and letting them find out what it is that maintains health for them, that's not what the antiquated system was, was, built for. And functional medicine was something that for years I was just like, I don't even know what this means. Right. And it seems like it is above my pay grade. I have nothing here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, yes. and it does make me wonder, you know, how it is that um it can kind of be a bit of an an, an antidote and a a a place to begin healing for those of us that feel like all I know is the healthcare system as it is. And I don't know what else there is.
1: Right. And I I think that one of the things you said is, you know, it's, it's that people are not, there are populations that are not properly supported. And unfortunately that's any population that, or any person in any population that is experiencing chronic health challenges. And that population is on the rise and it's comprised of, absolutely comprised of marginalized populations. It's not just impacting women in all demographics, but it's starting to impact our girls as well because of the physiological connections between stress and what happens internally in combination with our hormones, right? It's that systems biology. And so when we think about people not being properly supported by our healthcare system, it's those that don't need acute care. And our medical system does acute care well. I mean, Mm -hmm. I am grateful for my husband's two craniotomies and his chemotherapy, like weird things to say. But when you're facing that, I'm grateful for those interventions because they bought him time. I'm grateful when my mom, who's in her 80s, broke her hip, that that could be fixed, right? Then when she's going through that, I'm like, I don't know what people do who don't have an advocate like me who understands the medical system and can navigate it for her with the other people. like There's a huge gap there, and we as patients have given ourselves over to a system that cannot hold our chronic health concerns. So that population is huge and growing, and so many more of us who are experiencing inequities for a variety of reasons are falling into those gaps that exist in healthcare. So in addition to prevention, like you're talking about, how do we recognize that when we're on this quest for a diagnosis, these diagnoses don't lead to the answer? If we look at my Hashimoto's, I know you mentioned that you have a chronic illness. If we look at long mm-hmm. COVID, like the, the label doesn't lead you to the care that you're going to need to get better, that is the place for functional thinking. This is where I feel like the medical gaslighting comes in. Yes.
0: Because you can't get a diagnosis or any type of guidance around care if you are being guided or forcibly led to think or feel a specific way about it that really isn't in your best interest. It's in the best interest of the medical industrial complex. Before I even keep using the term medical gaslighting, please share the way that you use that term when it comes up in the work you do.
1: At its core, medical gaslighting is going to be the result of poor physician-patient relationships it's going to be when you feel rebuffed or disrespected or treated like you're not heard and when you are denied care. And let's be honest, here in the U.S., Black, Asian, other ethnically diverse women face these barriers to accessing health care, to accessing treatment, to accessing services, to being insured for those services, at rates that are abysmal. So medical gaslighting to me can be a big thing. It can also be the very subtle ways in which we leave an appointment and feel like that person didn't hear me or they had their hands between my legs and they weren't paying attention to me or what the fuck just happened in that room. And I've had those experiences as a white woman, and I can't imagine what people are experiencing in medical rooms. I'm going to say, especially when you're in a situation where there are, unfortunately, medical residents who I know are exhausted and are experiencing their own trauma, but the lack of empathy that is brought to care in those situations uh, is... Just, I, I mean, it just blows my mind. It's not care. No, it's not. And I want to just give um,
0: two examples of this so that, you know, for anyone that maybe hasn't experienced it or isn't sure that they've experienced it, which may actually be a telltale sign that you have. Right. Because it, it, gaslighting is something that is very insidious. It's not blatant, which is what makes it so damaging. I've had a dear friend that, you know, has been in doctor's offices and has simply misgendered themselves on purpose to not have to have Mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. conversations with the people that keep misgendering them. Or at least if I say this, I'll get care. I don't Mm -hmm. like that I have to do it. Or the, you know, being in an office and being so uncomfortable. With being the person that you were comfortable being able to be five minutes ago, and now you're having to almost put on you know a shroud in this space in hopes that you will be able to receive some semblance of half-ass care if we're being honest about it and yeah. for myself um, one of my chronic illnesses is because I was diagnosed um, at about 20 with Crohns. Mm-hmm. And Crohn's is one of those things that it, it constantly gets misdiagnosed with IBS and Mm -hmm. all kinds of other gut concerns. And there's not a lot of clear cut information around Crohn's. My gut is just shot to shingles basically. And I remember when I first found out, you know, I was just, you know, they're like, oh, you have the flu, take this medicine and go home. You just, you just got like a bug. The next day I was like, this is not a bug. I went back and I'm like, I'm not leaving until you figure out what's what's wrong. Um, they ended up admitting me, did a bunch of tests, got a colonoscopy. They were like, oh, you have Crohn's. Yeah. The first doctor that I had, um, who was a white man, wanted me to be on medication that was $350 for a month and a half supply. And I was like, I'm sorry, that was a half a month supply. I misspoke, a half a month. <laughs> and at 20, I was like, I can't afford that. And his response to me when I said that I couldn't afford it was figure it out, man. I then went to someone else and had more um, tests done and they looked at the test results that I had. This particular doctor who was a white woman who I still see to this day as my gastroenterologist said, you don't need to be on any medication. I've never had to be medicated for my Crohn's. I have had flare-ups, I had challenges while I was pregnant with my children, but I've never had to be on daily medication for it.
1: Yeah.
0: And if I had listened to that first person totally. who not only wanted me to pay an astronomical amount that I could not afford, but they wanted me to have been on medication for over 20 years for something that I never needed medicine for.
1: Yeah, there's so much I have to say to that. I mean, first of all, I'm so sorry you went through that. And this is something, Crohn's is the kind of thing that from a functional perspective, we can actually look at those roots, right? There's no quick fix. There's no easy answer. You actually are finding your way, which is brilliant. But this is one of those examples when I would say Crohn's is a branch The roots to any chronic condition are the genes or the genetic predisposition, digestion and inflammation. And when we actually address not just the roots, but the soil that those roots live in, we start to impact the severity and the expression of the disease. So we're not playing target practice with the disease like that medication that you couldn't afford and didn't need to afford. Instead, we're saying, what's the terrain, the environment in which this diagnosis exists and expresses itself? It's sort of like what you asked me with the symptom and the disease, right? When we address the terrain, we are addressing the symptoms and the disease. When we shift the entire terrain, and we can think about that you know, uh, sociologically as well. And then I love that you chose another doctor. That's so important because that is you exercising your right. And I want to recognize that not everybody has that option. Mm -hmm. And how do we then really still respond to what's happening with medical gaslighting. So I just want to give a couple of examples before I, or add to your examples before I talk about how we do deal with it. Fat women are totally gaslit all the time, told that their body size is the fault. That's the, that's why they're sick and they may have done everything they could be doing or be recommended to do. And yet they're still told that they're at fault for whatever they're experiencing and then dismissed their pain is written off. They're told that they're hysterical. That's been historical for women in general. Um, I had experiences where when I was trying to figure out what was going on with my thyroid and I went in to see a naturopath, I was diagnosed with adrenal fatigue, one of those diagnoses du jour because of my experience. So she took the reality that... I had lost my husband. I was now a single mom. I was building a business, putting myself back through school. She took that reality and placed a diagnosis on it and started to treat that. And when I went back and said, this doesn't feel right, I'm not feeling good, she said, this is what you're going to have to go through to get better. That's gaslighting, right? Um, There's all sorts of ways that it shows up. And structural racism is insidious in medical gaslighting. I think their numbers are like 25% of Black women in the U.S. have experienced discrimination when they visit a doctor or a clinic. And as you said, they'll often be or have to fight for the very existence of their own pain. And so how do we stop and recognize, like, when we walk out of an office that we were dismissed, that we weren't heard, that something didn't feel right and find our next steps forward from there. And that is the piece
0: that is very depressing to think about because Mm -hmm. we can do all of the things as the patient, but it is really one the medical professional because they're in a position to actually do the things. And so if nothing then happens, it does put us in these very challenging situations. Do we have access to find other providers? Are there even other providers for the things that we're looking for? Because as someone, again, that I have kidney um, issues. And so there was no one else to go to other than this one medical group.
1: Right. Right.
0: there were no other options. And so being that we are very much at the mercy of the actual clinicians regardless of of what it is that they're doing you know we can try our best to navigate that because we can do all the things in the world but if they don't listen and they don't do anything and they don't believe us and listen and like taking it in not even just did you hear my voice but like did you process yeah what i gave you like what you know what do we kind of do with that when we're like this person is god-awful at what they do
1: yeah let's talk into that because it's not easy and I think it takes a lot of self-advocacy, and um, I think it could actually be something that contributes to our signs, symptoms, and illnesses when we're frustrated with our doctors. I see it all the time. I've worked with thousands of people. And what I hear a lot is my doctor won't run this test. My doctor won't do this. My doctor doesn't hear me. And right in there, we are in a sympathetic dominant state, fight or flight state that doesn't allow for the healing of our chronic conditions. So there's this funny place between how do we advocate for ourselves and not spend our energy and our anger a lot of anger towards those medical providers. So I have three steps. They're pretty darn broad. But the first step when this happens, when we realize we've been gaslit or we feel something didn't land right within us, is just to forgive ourselves. Because I think we often walk out of there and wonder and beat ourselves up, why did that happen? Why did that just happen? Wait, what actually just happened in there that felt really shitty why didn't I stand up for myself why didn't I talk back to them why did I, I don't know about you but I see that that happens a yes. lot and every social insult is a physiological injury right
0: oh I want to pause you on that I want you, that that statement right there please say that again
1: Yeah. Every social insult is a physiological injury. (sighs) I think
0: that it is so under acknowledged that the things that you receive that are insults and and injury to your person can create tangible harm. It's not just, oh, it hurt my feelings no, it can hurt your body literally.
1: Correct. Absolutely. And I like to say that self forgiveness is our ultimate act of resistance. And when you have an autoimmune condition, like you have, like I have, we are actually in the act of attacking ourselves. That's what our immune system is doing. It's attacking ourselves, our own cells autoimmune. And so when we think about how we forgive ourselves and honor ourselves, that is the first step. I didn't know that was going to happen. I didn't know to ask for anything differently. And I'm okay. I am not broken. Those are really important first steps. And they seem Simple. I always like to say that a lot of what I talk about is the simplicity on the other side of complexity, because there's a lot to getting to that point. Our body has already turned on itself. We need to right. stop that. We need to resist. So it's amazing how much we bypass that and go, yeah, yeah, I've already done that. Now I need to do X, Y, Z. But it is a huge act. Step number two is to examine your options. So what does that mean for you? It could mean that you go find another doctor. You walk out that office and you're like, I'm never going back there. It could mean that you ha- are in a practice and you can't change practices because of your insurance or what you have access to if it's if there is no insurance. And you can see if there is another provider in that practice. I think people don't realize they can do this. You Mm -hmm. can say, if there are two doctors in this practice alone, two, I can ask to see the other one and say... I didn't have a good start with that other doctor. I'd like to try this one. And when we are doing that, we are actually in that place of agency. We have more agency with our healthcare than we think we do. So I just want to acknowledge I've done the same thing you have of like, I'm not coming back here. That felt like crap. I'm going Mm -hmm. somewhere else. But not all of us have that opportunity. No. I also just want to recognize that we may have to shift our expectations of the relationship. When we are examining our options, what is it we're trying to get out of that relationship with a medical provider? Because what they offer, as we've been discussing, is limited. So what is it we actually want from them and defining the scope of that relationship. So I like to think about this as agreements versus expectations. So in that step two of exploring your options, take a moment to look at where you might have expectations of that relationship and what those expectations are and how you might reframe them to get what you need out of that relationship.
0: I do think that the expectations is a huge part because we are conditioned that doctors are there to help. And so there's this expectation of you're going to have all the answers. You're going to give me all the correct answers. This will be fixed. And I don't have to do this high level of personal advocacy. Right. And that's not accurate.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, one of the clear examples that I experience is people will come to me and say, uh, my doctor says my diet has nothing to do with my Crohn's or my colitis. And let's just be real. Doctors get about seventeen hours of nutrition training in their nearly seventy thousand hours of. Medical Are you school. serious? I didn't know I am that. Serious. Yeah, <laughs> seventeen hours. That's average, but you know, what? pretty fair average. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah. But, well, but that explains why they never look to food or nutrition as a part of the cause or a cure.
1: Exactly. And I like to say nutrition isn't just about what we eat, it's about what our body can do with what we eat. And nutrition is about growth, metabolism and repair. So it has a place in everything. And this leads us to step three, which is how we take care. And I, I like to capitalize take like, I'm like, fucking take it, like take care. Care that might mean you show up at the doctor's office and you say, You know what? I struggle with anxiety, and so when you start talking about what's going on with my body, I may shut down. Can I ask you to hold space with me for that? Because I'm gonna shut down and then I'm gonna go home and start Googling everything and freak myself out, and that's not gonna that's just not healthy for me. So, how do we walk in? With an hour agenda. Here's my agenda. Here's what I'm hoping to get from this time together and hold space for that and ask for it up front. Taking care is ours to take between our doctor's office, whether we received the information that we wanted or we didn't. When we're tying these three steps together and we forgive ourselves as an act of resistance, we have more time and energy to actually take care. We are taking care of ourselves. We're recognizing nutrition is also about like what How I sleep and when I sleep. It's about how I actually address my stress and how I'm doing that within my everyday. What tiny steps can I take to actually take care of myself? It may be taking a walk every day, it may be recognizing the relationships that are triggering for you and how you're going to reframe your expectations of those relationships. All of those things. go back to that notion that it's a that every social insult is a physiological injury that life is not something that happens to us because it will it will happen to us externally throughout history our ancestry and all of that's going to impact what's happening internally. That's the study of epigenetics. It's just making those connections and associations. So take care. It's yours to take.
0: There's so much. And I have to just say thank you because otherwise I'm going to ask you another question and we're going to be talking for the next hour (laughs) and a half because you say epigenetics. I'm like, oh, I have so much here. (laughs) And I think that giving those three steps can help so that people understand that there are things that they can try in larger, small ways to enact for themselves to hopefully not only facilitate better care, but to also facilitate better care that they can give to themselves as they navigate um, whatever medical appointments or interactions that they need to have. Mm -hmm. And so so much, so much, so much. So the last question that I'm going to ask is just if there's any one action that you think that people could take, if they feel as though they've been affected by any of the biases that we've, we've mentioned or beyond, mm-hmm. or they've been um, recipients of medical gaslighting or someone that they know or care for, because I want to acknowledge some people are caretakers. Um, what's one thing? That you maybe you, think they could do?
1: You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring it back to the pause because when we're forging ahead in opposition, fighting, we've got the armor on, we have to protect ourselves from all these inequities that are happening to us all the time. I think just taking that pause and honoring and recognizing, having the place to rest, to speak it out loud, if you need to, to get the hug and the cuddle from yourself or your people, that pause is what brings us into the rest and digest that parasympathetic state for our entire nervous system to reset and move forward and in today's day and age we're always we're always forging ahead we're always at battle so i'm going to say take time to pause
0: love it all of that thank you So very much, Andrea. And I think, Andrea, there's going to be more questions I have. So we need to definitely figure out how to continue this conversation. But I would love to. This has been amazing. So please make sure you let the people know where they can interact with you, learn more about you and be able to follow up if they are now curious.
1: Yeah, thank you. You can find me at all the Andrea Nakayamas, so lots of A's, so website andreanakayama.com. That will lead you back to the Functional Nutrition Alliance, where I train practitioners, back to my podcast, The 15-Minute Matrix, also on social, Andrea Nakayama leads you back again to anything I'm doing for the patient arena and everything I do over at the Functional Nutrition Alliance for the practitioner arena. And I just want to say I started out with those three tenants, and tenant number one being the patient-practitioner relationship, and I've spent the last decade or so devoting myself to training an army of practitioners who can help fill these gaps. And I feel really passionate right now about turning my attention back to the patient. How can we all be the best patient we can be so that we are taking that care of ourselves? Thank you so much for uh,
0: your, your energy, your time, your expertise, your context, everything that you have shared here with us today. Thank you. Thank you that gave so much. And I'm so grateful for that conversation, especially being that I feel like people want to figure out how to better care for themselves. They want to be better advocates for themselves. And being able to, one, reclaim your permission to do that. And two, being able to figure out what are some of those tangible steps that I can be a part of for myself and how can I, you know, shift this to work better for me? That was so helpful. And if nothing else, being able to just better acknowledge what is and is not happening can help you to figure out what do I need to be different? What do I need to shift? Or what is working? If you are beneficial in your treatment to to know that, hey, some things are working, I am happy for you genuinely, because everyone doesn't have that. And so being able to acknowledge when things are working well, why they're working well, and how you can continue to amplify that or make shifts when it's not. This is us in the midst of our reclamation of our power, of our healing and our wellness. So as always, anytime that you show up here taking in these real conversations while we are normalizing the challenging things and making them a part of our everyday exchanges, I thank you. Together, this is how we remove stigma and create real, actual, tangible change in connection. We will continue crossing lines and recreating boundaries to support, not separate. Together, let's get more people dropping the veil and challenging their thoughts, feelings, actions, and state of being. So, till the next time, keep the dialogue going. Bye.